Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Well, welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back. Okay. I have a big episode here. This is probably going to be a longer one. My apologies again. Uh, you know, I'm starting to push almost two hours with some of these. And then, of course, it just kind of depends on what's going on. But I, I got to tell you, I came across a great deal of things here over the last few days. And it connects a, a great deal of dots also, just to, again, sort of help anybody out there, myself included, make sense of this madness, basically. So the war certainly continues. And I just want to start with a, a couple of returning items very quickly here. First of all, the uh, social experiment of me being on YouTube has certainly worked out exactly exactly as I had planned, basically. Uh, three episodes in, with Friday's episode being deleted by YouTube. And they said, if you do it again, then you get some strike or whatever the hell that means. And yeah, I'm basically just uploading the episodes the way that I upload, uh, upload them rather on other platforms, and um, they're just going to keep deleting them. And I'm just going to keep doing that until they nuke the channel. Again, I just started the YouTube channel last week, I think, and uploaded, again, three episodes, and the third one got, got blown up. So, whatever. No, no, uh, you know, no sweat off my brow. It doesn't bother me any. That's the whole point. The whole point is just to continue to prove that it's not a free speech platform, never has been, certainly isn't right now. And uh, if you're not on there brainwashing people, and if you're not on there dulling people to sleep and not telling people the truth and, you know, jumping in, Swimming pools full of Fruit Loops. Well, if you're not doing those things, then uh, then you're the enemy to them, and they're right there. I mean, that right there should show you that YouTube is the problem, and any platform that allows that kind of distraction on there is certainly the problem. And any platform that doesn't allow the truth is the problem. So, so upward and onward until it gets destroyed. That's the whole point. Uh, and with that said. This right here is why I've titled the episode Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars. I came across this document. Again, if it's to be believed, it certainly makes perfect sense. But I'll describe it a little bit later. And it has everything to do with how the CIA is, has, has always been, and certainly since the end of World War II, has been using whatever they can use that has nothing to do with an actual gun or gunpowder or those kinds of weapons, but using different kinds of weapons, in particular social engineering and brainwashing and technology, in order to control people. And YouTube is one of those silent weapons. They delete a channel, they don't tell anybody they delete a channel, and then just like that, a channel is gone. And somebody that, uh, you know, a group of people used to rely on for information and factual information is all of a sudden deplatformed. Or, again, the person just disappears off the face of the planet and nobody seems to ask any questions. Either way, they have their methods, as we all know, regarding censorship as a whole. And they're always going to keep using these particular methods because it's far more quiet than pulling a trigger. And again, I'm going to get into that in a little bit, and I have a numerous examples that basically outline that entire scheme throughout this whole episode, but I have a few other miscellaneous things, too, that I want to bring up, too. So let me just get into it here. First of all, geopolitically speaking, over this past couple of weeks, there's been a great deal of chatter regarding the FCC and the fake Biden administration taking control of the internet to some extent. 
and ultimately, again, deciding what can and cannot exist on the internet, certainly with social media platforms. And like we all heard last week with Nikki Haley and uh, that witch of a governor in New York, they're basically all concerned with who is on the internet, what are they saying, that it's inciting hate, and we need to out these people and use all of our Bolshevistic methods in order to out these people and, uh, and and ruin their lives, essentially, in particular when they say things or do things that we don't like. So, this was from last week on Zero Hedge, and it's titled, Microsoft and Meta Detail Plan to Combat, quote, Election Disinformation, Including Watermarks for Memes and More Fact-Checkers. Again, they would rather have watermarks for memes than watermarks on election ballots. They would rather spend more effort silencing free speech, squashing our First Amendment rights, and any other rights that we have in the Constitution given to us by God than they would making things honest. Not to mention, of course, they're not interested in that because they are the enemy and they've labeled themselves as such with their own actions, and we can clearly see that. So this shouldn't surprise anybody, but this right here again should show every, every single person the blatant hypocrisy of all of these organizations. Again, I'm not going to get into the article because I think that the title basically does it justice, and it really does. It's a short article, but again, this is what they're doing. They're doing whatever they can to get on the internet to then try to discredit anybody who puts out any kind of a report or a Substack article or even a meme, and then they will report on those things to their audiences, claiming that the thing that they are highlighting that someone else created or someone else wrote is not factually accurate. Well, it pretty much gives up the goose, I think. And we know where their priorities are. These are traitorous organizations, and they, again, they have to be taken down, in my humble opinion, and uh, we cannot have nor live in a free and open society where that's, you know, basically where these organizations continue to exist. It just can't happen. Then there's this, again, regarding the overall internet. My apologies for the reference here, but this comes from The Blaze, and it's titled, The FCC is Voting to Seize American Internet Infrastructure in the Name of Equity, quote-unquote. Again, this right here is the silent weapon for a war. They, they use policy instead of a gun. They use their collective mentality within these organizations to go after individuals and then groups of individuals, shut down businesses, shut down people, shut down free speech, whatever it is. And at the exact same time, the FCC will put up a handful of 5G towers in a town near you in the dead of night. And there again is another example of your silent weapon. People think that it's for cell phone service. Joke's on them. It isn't. It has nothing to do with cell phone service. See, they have all of these different methods that they can use in order to destroy us because they own these organizations and these organizations are never held in check. When was the last time the FCC was brought in front of Congress or a Senate committee and questioned? about 5G towers, and how, again, the individuals who erect these have been in court before, openly testifying in court on the record that, again, the silent weapon of 5G towers are remar- or can be, I should say, harmful and 
have not been proven to be safe. This is this is their this is their silent weapon, and they use, of course, Congress and the Senate and so on and so on in order to carry out their mission by giving them kickbacks and and cutting them checks from time to time, and of course, lobbying for them and advocating for their for their reelection. This is the silent war. So again, it says when regimes capture power, it's often not in the dramatic fashion of the storming of the Bastille. Instead. It's a bureaucratic takeover hidden in jargon and filled with cliches for the greater good. The Federal Communications Commission is poised to vote today on a sweeping set of new rules called the, quote, Preventing Digital Discrimination Order. Now, this was on November 15th, and I think that they they did this. They passed it because, again, why wouldn't they? It's their own policy. They're not going to vote against their own policy. They're not going to vote against their own control, and they're not going to vote against one of their own silent weapons for a quiet war. They're going to always vote for their own thing that they create. And that's just one more example. So, again, that happened. You know, this has been it's been predicted and talked about at great length for, for an, a number of years now, but certainly within the last year plus is, again, what is going to happen between now and the next election. How much of the internet is going to get shut down? How much of free speech is going to be squashed? How many constitutional rights are going to be destroyed? This is, this is the direction that, that things are going, and these organizations are openly doing it. Again, these organizations and government working hand-in-hand against us. They are the enemy. Now, just very quickly, and it's kind of unrelated, but I just wanted to mention this because I find little revelations like this, of course, very interesting in the grand scheme of things because normally such a thing would never occur. Normally such a person would never be arrested, and their crimes, of course, would would be hidden without a doubt. But why is it that last week, John Podesta's friend, was arrested for raping toddlers. And again, did the mainstream media bring that up? Did anybody in the mainstream media talk about that? Again, this individual had direct ties with John Podesta, was a editor-in-chief at The Recount, and his name is Slade Schomer. Yes, he's Jewish. Friend of former Hillary Clinton campaign chair John Podesta, and he was arrested last month for raping multiple toddlers and babies. And this was the guy, again, the journalist who, quote-unquote, debunked Pizzagate. Now, Pizzagate is very simple. It's a a slang term for the Comet Ping Pong Pizza place run by James Aliphantus, which, again, James Aliphantus is a gay man taking suggestive, sexually suggestive pictures and kidnapping pictures of children being bound and gagged and taped to tables and all of that stuff. Again, why would a story like this even be released if, if the bad guys were in control of everything? It's pretty evident that they're not in control of everything. Because again, normally this would never hit any outlet whatsoever. He wouldn't even be detained. He might be brought in and say, look, we know what you did, but you have too many ties to the bad guys, so we're going to let you go. Don't do it again. And, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> how do you look at a person like this and say he's not even a person, he's a monster? How do you look at somebody like this and say, don't do that again? 
don't rape babies anymore. These people need to be shot. But the fact is, is that at least they're detained and they've been arrested now. But my question again continues to be with all of the left-wing political ties that this individual has, if this person were on the seeming right of the political spectrum and associated with Donald Trump in any way, we of course know what the outrage would be. We know exactly what would happen here. But this is an individual who is directly tied to John Podesta, who I believe still works for the Biden administration, the fake pseudo-Biden administration. So there's certainly good guys behind the scenes doing things. There's no doubt about it. Again, this story was run with on November 16th and, and the days, you know, the days after the fact. But it's a big deal. This is a very big deal. And where's the mainstream media? It's just crickets. But that's their silent war also, isn't it? Their silent war is that if something or someone that they're affiliated with gets busted and their card gets pulled, they ignore it because they have to. If they bring this up, they all look foolish. The very guy who wrote an article saying that Pizzagate was fake in order to run cover for everybody who was participating in child trafficking and child rape and pornography and the whole thing gets busted for doing the exact same thing. This is, this is their MO. This is, what, this is what they do. It's just constant. So I wanted to bring that to your attention in case you were unaware of that. Okay. There was this story, too, which I found interesting before I get into the bigger picture here. Uh, this was also from last week, the end of last week, rather interesting and, frankly, a bit redundant. And I'm a bit disappointed that, um, you know, a lot of people ran with this like it was a fantastic thing, not understanding that it's just something that's in the Constitution and, and we don't need resolutions or even city council or township approval for such a thing. This is from the Midwesterner.news, and it's titled, Muskegon County Township Declares Second Amendment Sanctuary Forms Militia. It says, Township Adopting Policies Necessary for the Security and Rights of Holton Township Residents. Yes. Good. But you don't need permission from anyone to be a Second Amendment Sanctuary. The very phrase of that, that very saying, is spitting in the face of the United States Constitution and you're creating a policy for a policy that already exists. It's not even a policy. It's law. It's the law of the land. So you're creating a motion or, again, some, some resolution for something that's already been resolved. This is the part of the whole se uh, Second Amendment discussion that I find beyond disgusting. I cannot believe that this continues to happen. Ladies and gentlemen, we can form a militia anytime we want. We don't need permission from anybody. We have Second Amendment sanctuary because the Constitution says so. We don't need permission from anyone. Any law that is written into law that goes against already existing law by constitutional order is null and void. It means nothing. And the Second Amendment of the Constitution was for a well-armed militia, which means all we have to do is get together. Maybe wear the same t-shirts or you know the same leather jackets or something and look a particular way. Or maybe we don't. 
maybe we just communicate and we say, if anybody gets squirrely and anybody gets crazy, well, here's the Constitution. There are things that we are allowed to do and things that we are not allowed to do. But again, good for them for reminding themselves that they have constitutional rights, but you don't need any kind of a city council or township motion in order to protect yourselves from unlawful orders that that seek to undermine the Constitution of the United States. Just keep that in mind. Again, they got a lot of attention, this particular township. You know, they got a giant letter here. Uh, It's been decreed and signed and by the township clerk and blah, blah, blah. That's all great, good for you. It's already in writing. It's called the Constitution. That's all. It's that simple. They even, in their letter here, they specifically highlight uh, the District of Columbia versus Heller. I mean, (laughs) it's absolutely hilarious. They're bringing up endless Supreme Court cases that say we have the right to defend ourselves because the Constitution says so and so on and so forth. Yes, of course. It's just redundant. Again, just very quickly, if you have to create motions to remind yourself of your constitutional rights, then you've forgotten your constitutional rights. All that has to happen if somebody needs to be reminded of something is they show up to one of these township or city council meetings and they remind everybody of what the Constitution says and that those individuals never get to subvert the Constitution with any policy, resolution, ordinance, or whatever, because those aren't laws. So, again, good for them. I'm happy for them, but the Constitution already exists. So, just keep that in mind. Okay, now that leads me to this. I stumbled across this earlier this week, uh, actually toward the end of last week, I should say, and it makes a whole lot of sense. In fact, after reading it, it's pretty clear that this is the clear definition of divide and conquer. There's a lot of Sun Tzu in this also, that you walk in with a plan in any state of warfare or any battle, and you have to have a plan first. If you don't have a plan and you just start fighting without a plan and without goals and without steps, then you're, you've already lost. But in this particular plan, what's laid out here is basically two approaches. The first The first approach on the top half of of this piece of paper, which I'm going to read here, you have a strategy for how the enemy has been successful up to this point. And what is it that they do? Again, keeping keeping in mind this document I'm going to read a little bit later. I should I probably should have started with it, but either way, it'll make sense when I'm when I'm done reading that too. That this is the silent weapon, that this is one of the ways that they maintain control of all of their environments. And as soon as I was done reading this, I thought to myself, this right here is the school environment in a nutshell. This is K-12 education. This is university education. But then you can't help but think of every single working environment, certainly the larger working environments. But this right here is how it's done. And what it essentially says is, is you can take down three-letter agencies of government by doing what is suggested in the second half of this document, on the lower half, by going through with each individual step in a specified order and then wearing them down. 
So again, it is a divide and conquer strategy on how you beat these people. And I'll give you another example, just very quickly again before I even read the first half. Like I said in the second half, it describes exactly what to do on, on how to destroy these. It says you can take down a city council or you can take down the FBI. We're actually watching this in real time, not just with the media. And we are seeing this destruction of the media, and it is on purpose. This is not an accident. This is a very directed, silent weapon that is being used against the bad guys from us and from people like you as well. That we're all working together and destroying the media and destroying their stories and their narrative. The same thing is happening in education, the medical industry, and, and the FBI and three-letter agencies. The FBI and Director Ray are consistently being drug out in front of the American people and being shown to be the hypocrites that they are, in particular all the January 6th stuff and all of that footage. All that footage, again, is showing Capitol Police officers fist bumping, people that are coming in, coming out, patting them on the back, taking pictures with them, so on and so on. And again, for Director Ray last week to say that he doesn't know anything about federal agents encouraging people to go into the building, ultimately to be entrapped and get arrested on down the line. Well, he's lying. He's either lying or he's doing that, or he's lying to protect himself in, in some particular way. Or again, it's possible he's part of a plan to again highlight the hypocrisy. And he's been given some kind of a deal behind the scenes to where again he'll get off because he's purposefully highlighting the silent weapon that's been used against us here. So here's what the first half of this document says. The top half, again, this is called Basilisk, Basilisk a Model, B-A-S-I-L-I-S-K. Now, I had to look, look up what that was. As it turns out, it's this mythological creature that's basically like part chicken, part turtle, and something else. I don't understand the metaphorical significance of it, but either way, it's sort of like a shapeshifter. That, that they, they take on different personalities, and they take on different roles and different identities, and they can adapt to different, basically different environments and different scenarios. It certainly makes sense. But again, this strategy has been utilized by almost every single working environment within the United States and around the world. This, again, is why these environments get rid of the morally sound and they keep the immoral and the brainwashed. They know exactly what they're doing. So here's what it says. It's titled, How the Regime Works. So again, I just want you to imagine five boxes all in a circle going from right to left. And it just spells it all out here, and I'm going to read through each one. So at the top is box number one. And it has to do with unelected, invisible interests, capture regulators, and institutions. So then it says, number two, those institutions don't directly tell the people working for them what the game is. Those who cooperate, who don't ask too many questions, are naturally just promoted. Sounds like most working environments, doesn't it, already? This is always a part of their plan. And again, I'll tell you who knows this specifically and operates under this model are HR directors. Human resource directors and the public persona, uh, I, I've, I've mentioned them before on the show, the, the public relations people that work for these organizations, they know this plan. They operate under this plan. 
Number three here says those who are non-cooperative, who aren't enthusiastic about corruption, are just quietly pushed out. Again, I couldn't help but think of my, myself and my own whistleblowing experience in K-12 education. It's the same exact thing. This is exactly what they do. If you don't play, if you don't play ball and you don't play the corrupt game that they all play, they know you won't because you haven't in the past. You've shown a pattern of not being immoral and being a complete piece of trash like they are. So they put, into, they, they put this process into play. And again, it says they push them out. They quietly push them out, often under mere pretexts and purging any defectors. This is what they do. Point number four then says the most corrupt and the most decadent are creative, are now free to create policy, often obscurely, in secret, without meaningful or effective regulation oversight. Has two meanings here. Responsibility is diffused. Everyone is just doing their job, either making or enforcing policy. Again, I can't help but think of American K-12 education and administrators. This is how they operate. They just go along. They just do what they're told. They get their orders from top down. They have to say yes, no thinking allowed. And then again, if that policy finds its way into a classroom and those individuals go along with it, well, then they get to stick around. Somebody doesn't go along with it, in particular, if it's immoral, then they have to go. It's no different with any other government agency. Same thing. And then finally, this is how they operate. This is point five. It says this creates crisis and problems in the public and institution, necessitating more power grabs and enriching, empowering those who took control behind the scenes, strengthening the first step as the process reinforces itself. And then you're right back to number one which again is unelected, invisible interests, capture regulators, and institutions. So what do you typically see with the individuals who work within these organizations, regardless of where they are, when their crimes or their immoral behavior is highlighted? Very rarely are they fired. They just either quietly resign or they're given a promotion. And they move them around from building to building, institution to institution, place to place, et cetera, et cetera. Look at all, the, all of the FDA and Pfizer employees and all the CDC and other pharmaceutical employees. If they haven't worked for one group, then they just move over and they end up working for another. If things get a little too hot or, th or public attention finds its way a little too much on a, on a specific individual, that individual will leave quietly, they'll resign, quote-unquote, and then they'll find their way into another institution. They're not arrested. They're not executed. That doesn't happen. They're just, they're just slid around. Again, in the education business, they call them lemons. Take a lemon, a bad person in an environment, whether they've actually done good or they haven't, and you just move them around because the last thing you want is negative public attention on the institution or on the person with regularity. Now that brings in, into, into the discussion here, this second part. This second part is how you destroy these institutions. And you destroy them 
in summary, I'm going to read through all seven of these points, but you destroy them by repetition. And as you would expect, this takes effort, this takes time, it takes organization, but the enemy engages in this also. But the good guys can engage in this too. And you have to single out individuals and then you divide the whole by singling out individuals. Because then, as this says, everybody in the organization, the corrupt organization, sees that the person at the top is getting destroyed or that a couple of people within the organization are being attacked constantly, thereby scaring the shit out of everybody around them who works for the organization because they want nothing to do with it. This is one of the major reasons why, again, in the education business, you see very few people want to be administrators. I'm not saying that all administrators are corrupt. A lot of them, again, they have families, they're good people, they get in it for the money. That's not really the, that's not the reason to be an administrator, in my opinion, but that's why a lot of them do it. They're interested in the pay raise. They don't want to make what a teacher makes. They want to make twice or three times that, if not more. That's really why they do it. Same thing with superintendents. A lot of these guys are masons. They're not interested in really helping the environment. They're interested in facilitating its destruction while making copious amounts of money year in and year out, upwards of half a million dollars. So here's what it says. It says at the very top of the second part here, it says, this is the best explanation for what is going on across the world today, and here's how we beat it. And it says, a model for retaliation in diffuse environments, or different environments, however they, they mean to type that out. It says, number one, and this is in the first box, and there are seven boxes. Again, same, same sort of Venn diagram or, or circular model as the last one. It goes into point two, point three, point four, point five, point six, and then point seven. And then the arrow goes back to number one again. Number one says, pick an organization, any organization, doesn't matter how big or small, from the DHS all the way down to your local council. Number two, pick a random official from that institution, any of them. Doing this causes the ideas of risk, quote unquote, versus responsibility, quote unquote, to become distinct. This is now the scapegoat for the external pressure campaign. So you're picking an individual and you're saying, we're going to go after this person relentlessly regarding everything all of the time. So for example, you would go after a mayor. Well, what would happen typically? If you go after a mayor and you humiliate a mayor who's already a member of the sitting council, what would that council do in order to absolve the mayor? of any quote-unquote responsibility. Well, they would vote in a different mayor on the council. So the old mayor would now just become your basic council member, and then somebody else would take over as being the mayor. This is one of the things that's probably going to happen in the town where I live. Because again, everybody's pretty much sick of the current mayor, so what are they going to do? My, my guess is, is they'll put in the vice mayor who happens to be a female. And they'll do this because they'll, they'll think to themselves, well, it's a fresh face and blah, blah, blah. Most people fully understand that even that individual has been on council for four years also. So again, it's just multiple corrupt fingers on the exact same corrupt hand. It doesn't really matter. But the question here is, and the strategy, is that you're destroying their will to want the job. You're putting the question in their mind as to whether or not is 
the responsibility worth the risk? Do I want to be attacked like that last person? And by and large, people don't. It's exhausting. And if people again show up with a particular tone of voice, instead of being polite but get angry at these people, they can't take it very I mean, they really can't take it. They don't like it. Again, if you've even watched any of the uh, congressional or senatorial hearings where these three-letter agency individuals get up and, and start lying through their teeth about everything that they're doing, whether it be border policy or the CDC or you know the FDA, the shot rollouts, gain of function, you can pick a subject. They all get hot and heavy. All of them get hot and bothered about it. And, uh, and then it turns into a shouting match. Anybody on the periphery watching that is going, I don't want that job. I don't want to do that. I don't want Anthony Fauci's job. I don't want him to, be, to, to be the head of the NIH. I, I don't want that. To hell with that. And then they don't. By and large, they don't. And the only kind of person who would take a job like that after all of the attacking would be somebody who is insulated, somebody who's getting paid copious amounts of money. But again, they circle the wagons just like we do. Okay, I digress. Point number three, then, is you put pressure on this individual that you have selected. And then it says cancellations, reputation, campaigns, boycotting, protesting any method of activism that's effective, as long as it creates utter fear about their future within the law, that is. Now that strategy, you can also see that that right there is what the enemy also does. The enemy comes after the morally sound by canceling them, attacking their reputation, engaging in in campaigns against them, boycotting them, protesting them, any activism, again, as long as it's within the law, and anything that creates utter fear. We know that the enemy does this. What we're being told is, is that we have to use the enemy's plans against them. And people have to be wired a particular way, of course, in order to do that. But if you use it against them, that's the least thing that they're expecting. And it works. Number four. It says, after they have been socially, financially, reputation ally or career destroyed, or they've quit, or turned whistleblower, or divided the institution's leadership and paralyzed their decisions and policy processes, use them as an example to magnify the effect of the action against the next scapegoat. In summary, you're saying, where's your mayor now? Where did he go? Where did they go? Where's the head of, of uh, Homeland Security? Where did they go? Where's the head of the FBI? Where did they go? Do you want that position now? And all you're doing is reminding everybody that if anybody fills that position, you're screwed. Because we're going to come after you just as hard, if not harder, than we did the last person. Do you think you can take it? That's the approach that they're outlining here. Number five, then, says officials be it public or private, begin to question, quote, am I next? A sense of panic is to be cultivated like the Institute itself is under an assault on its very credibility and working for it isn't just disreputable, but risky. Indeed, this is the risk versus responsibility. This is the doubt you're putting in their mind. Do they really want to do this? Is it really worth it? Number six, then, 
it says officials begin to leave of their own accord. Leadership creates its own scapegoats in order to stem the flow of outrage as the protective veil of diffused responsibility fails and gives way to the apparent inevitability of one-at-a-time collective punishment regardless of who is more or less responsible or who is actually calling the shots. Translation, everybody in the organization starts to point fingers, and everybody starts to divide one another, and everybody starts to blame one another. This is divide and conquer in a nutshell, and it works. And again, the cool part is that it's already happening. This is already happening with numerous institutions, school boards, and three-letter agencies at the federal government level. It's amazing. And it really doesn't take a whole lot to kick the ball down the hill and get the ball rolling. It can be one person speaking at a meeting and, and again, injecting a particular wavelength of thought on a subject that they haven't thought about or that they haven't considered. And then they either try to ignore it or they, or they try not to, or they, you know, they try to manage it the best they can. It doesn't matter. It won't work. If more and more people show up and keep saying very similar things, the, the people that once supported them will no longer support them. It's beautiful. And then number seven, finally, it says the organization can now be believably labeled embattled, quote unquote, as officials in it, public figures responsible for its funding, and the public who once supported it begin to see the writing on the wall. Employees slash officials begin to leave on their own. As with each repetition, each new target, the belief grows that they'll be next. And then you're right back to the very first box, which is, again, pick an organization, any organization, doesn't matter how big or small, from the DHS all the way down to your local council. Then you pick a person. Then you go after that person with everything you've got. And then when that person steps aside or that person gets a little quiet, you remind everybody that it isn't just that person that's responsible for what's going on. So you pick another person and you attack them with everything you've got. And you just keep doing this. And you keep dividing them. And you keep planting seeds of doubt, seeds of fear, seeds of risk versus responsibility, and so on and so on. It's divide and conquer. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book. It's one of the oldest strategies to destroy anyone, and it works. At the end of this document, it says the following. It says, P.S. Centipede Nation has successfully been executing this model against the FBI for over a year now. I've never looked up Centipede Nation, but they claim that this is what they're doing, and they claim to be an organization that's helping push this, apparently. It says the public is psychologically prepared now for their agency to soon be labeled embattled. Now, again, let's look at the FBI very quickly as the example is even they say that they have been attacked and they are the example. There was a time when everybody was like, we need the FBI. We, we, we need them. And the likes of even Sean Hannity on Fox News, what did he always say? He would always say, uh, well, hell, I've just forgotten. Oh, the rank and file. There you go. Th that cliche term. Well, the rank and file FBI agents are all fine. It's the, it's the upper echelon that are the worst. Well, jokes on Sean Hannity. As it turns out, 
the rank and file, some of them are murderers. They're child molesters. They're child traffickers. They're money launderers. These are the quote-unquote rank and file of the FBI. But things have gotten so bad with the FBI on the public stage here that someone who once supported them and said, well, we can't live without the FBI. Maybe we just need to get rid of a few people, as even Sean Hannity has suggested, that that's not feasible anymore. It's more normal in the minds of the individuals in American society to abolish it completely and never have it exist again. That's how you normalize the abolition of not just people, but an entire organization that is, frankly, our enemy and always has been. But again, that's becoming normalized, and that's a beautiful thing. The next point they said is, they said the effectiveness of this strategy is that it's contagious. The act of protecting one individual at an institution against the public campaign against them necessarily means taking responsibility, which concentrates risk, which breaks their entire model. It's exhausting for them. They can't do it. They don't want to do it. Again, I'm, I'm being flooded right now with endless memories, and I'm trying to go back here uh, basically to just try to pick one. But I've told the story again about the high school principal who, who I had when, when he was in charge of the high school when I went from being a middle school teacher to a high school teacher because I was a whistleblower. They knew that I was. They, they moved me from building to building. And then they kept a close eye on me and they humiliated me and they, you know, they engaged in all the workplace bullying tactics that they do in order to get me out of the entire district. They tried to get me to quit. As a result of all of that, as that was all happening, what the principal of the high school didn't know is that he had individuals coming after him on a constant basis. So they targeted him. And it wasn't just staff members. It was actually less staff members, and it was more individuals in the public and boosters to the high school and other, and other individuals on the periphery. They wanted him gone. He was friends with the superintendent. He was friends with numerous individuals in outside districts. He had a criminal past. He had an unethical and unprofessional past and even an unethical and unprofessional present in the high school where we worked where he was using a female bathroom with females in it, and then he was accused of engaging in sexual favors with his secretary. All of this came out publicly in a faculty meeting with him standing on a stage and all of this being told to all of us while one of the assistant superintendents for the district was running cover for him and protecting him. In short order, he was kicked out of the, of the school before I was. He was kicked out of the high school and given a district job at the district office. See, they just moved him around, which is laid out in the plan that I just read. They just move him around. They don't get rid of him. They just move him around because they're trying to stem the flow of public concern away from one environment and into another. Well, what that ended up doing, of course, was endless individuals were not only threatening him legally and saying, you need to fire him, but they started to go after the superintendent, which he was now working closer with, who was now one of his friends. 
So what happened shortly after that? The superintendent resigned. I ended up resigning first, and then the superintendent followed my lead. Because again, he was wrapped up in the cover-up of what I was involved with and what I had uncovered, and he was associated with that also. This is the entire plan, and that's just one example. This happens all of the time. This plan is so frequent, it's as frequent as somebody getting up in the morning putting their shoes on before they leave the house. It then says this. It says, therefore, any attempt to save these individuals, officials, or institutions reveal the unofficial structure of their illegal influence network. Their very moves that they engage in give them away as being a criminal organization. Doesn't matter what organization it is. If they engage in the plan that I laid out at the top of this, they're a criminal organization. So here's how this document ends. It says the only choice the managerial regime has against the basilisk, if I'm saying that right, is either to double down, which accelerates the public's alienation and thus destabilization of the regime, or the regime is forced to abandon each new target of activism, be it individual officials or whole institutions, leading to dissension in the ranks and infighting. Unquote. That's divide and conquer. But again, make no mistake that every organization and every working environment engages in that very thing. Look at how many of these institutions, regardless of, again, the working environment, how many of them are avoiding the consequences of their own quote-unquote COVID policies. Look how many of them are avoiding the fact that they all made each other wear masks, how they all made each other take shots how they all made each other inject themselves with biological weapons that have killed some of their co-workers and made the rest of them deathly ill. And now everybody's wondering why insurance rates are going through the roof. They engaged in the very thing that criminal organizations engage in out in the open, and then in order to again squash anybody's concern, They just immediately did away with all of their policies and all of their procedures and all of their mandates and everything else. Not so with the hospital industry, though. The hospital industry is doubling down, aren't they? As the document says, they have a choice. Engage in infighting and admit any kind of wrongdoing, which they're not going to do, or double down. School districts are doing the same thing. They're not, they're not wearing the masks anymore, but they're encouraging people to take shots still. They're not wearing the masks and engaging in the, in the t- contact tracing and the, you know, kids have to walk around with, with plastic shields in front of each other and XYZ and social distance, but they're still telling people to get COVID tests, which are fake and faulty, and we've been over that before. So they're always stemming the tide and trying to move the stream of concern into into other avenues. If you were concerned about uh, mask wearing and social distancing, well, don't worry, we're not doing that anymore. Don't look over here. Just, you know, we recommend that you keep doing this and you keep doing this, but we'll just keep, you know, trying to bring things back to normal as much as we can. Criminal organizations do that. They've defined themselves as criminal organizations, all of them. Elected officials, schools, 
workplaces, corporations, city councils, three-letter agencies, doesn't matter. It's all of them. It's all of them. Which now leads me to this. This is the Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars document. Again, if this is to be believed, it makes plenty of sense to me. I think it might to you. Here's the story behind this, if it's to be believed. Uh, There's a piece of paper here titled Top Secret at the top. These are photocopies, basically, of this particular document. It was titled Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, an Introductory Programming Manual. Operations Research Technical Manual looks like uh, TM-S77 or SH7905.1, whatever the hell that means. Here's what it says, just kind of a quick little summary. It says R-110, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, Top Secret. This astonishing document was discovered in a surplus copier purchased from Boeing Aircraft in 1986. Reveals details of a plan hatched in the embryonic days of the Cold War, which called for the control of the masses through manipulation of industry, people's pastimes, education, and political leanings. It called for a quiet revolution pitting brother against brother and diverting the public's attention from what is really going on. For all intents and purposes, this document has come to pass, quote-unquote. Reprinted in its original form includes diagrams. I just want to read a couple of sections of this, and then what I'm going to do is is I'm going to put this PDF on my website under the Government Documents tab, and it will be at the bottom of that list, being the most recent document that, uh, that I've brought up here on the show. So this particular document, again, has a number of highlighted areas and underlined areas. It's all in type, so somebody clearly typed this out on, uh, on what appears to be a typewriter, sort of lending it its sort of authentic look anyway. And it makes complete and utter sense because this is, again, what we have experienced. This was the system that we were born into. Here's what it says at the very beginning on page three. And this is a 53-plus page document in total. It can certainly be read in one sitting, and it's frightening. But again, we're watching this take place, which lends a great deal of veracity to the document itself. It says the following here regarding, it says, security at the top. It It says, it is patently impossible to discuss social engineering or the automation of a society, i.e. the engineering or social automation systems, silent weapons, on a nation or worldwide scale without implying extensive objectives of social control and destruction of human life, i.e. slavery and genocide. This manual is in itself an analog declaration of intent. Such as writing must be secured from public scrutiny. Otherwise, it might be recognized as a technically formal declaration of domestic war. Furthermore, whenever any persons or groups of persons in a position of great power and without the full knowledge and consent of the public uses such knowledge and methodology for economic conquest, it must be understood that a state of domestic warfare exists between said person or group or persons and the public. The solution of today's problems requires an approach which is ruthlessly candid, with no agonizing over religious, moral, or cultural values. 
You have qualified for this project because of your ability to look at human society with cold objectivity and yet analyze and discuss your observations and conclusions with others of similar intellectual capacity without a loss of discretion or humility. Such virtues are exercised in your own best interest. Do not deviate from them. It says this publication marks the 25th anniversary of the Third World War called the Quiet War, being conducted using subjective biological warfare fought with silent weapons, quote-unquote. This book contains an introductory description of this war, its strategies, and its weaponry, signed May of 1979. Then on page 5, It has a historic introduction. I'm going to keep reading this because, again, they lay it out. It says, Silent weapon technology has been evolved from Operation Research, OR, a strategic and tactical methodology developed under the military management in England during World War II. The original purpose of Operations Research was to study the strategic and tactical problems of air and land defense with other objectives with the objective, rather, of effective use of limited military resources against foreign enemies, i.e. logistics. It was soon recognized by those in positions of power that the same methods might be useful for total control of a society, totally controlling a society, rather. It says, but better tools were necessary. Social engineering, the analysis and automation of a society, requires the correlation of great amounts of constantly changing economic information, data, so a high-speed computerized data processing system was necessary which could race ahead of the society and predict when a society would arrive for capitulation. Relay computers were too slow, but the electronic computer invented in 1946 by J. Presper Eckert and John W. Malkley, I'm saying that right, filled the bill. The next breakthrough was the development of the simplex method of linear programming in 1947 by the mathematician George B. Danzig. Then, in 1948, the transistor invented by J. Ardeen, W. H. Uh, Bretain, and W. Shockley, there we go, promised great expansion of the computer field by reducing space and power requirements. With those three inventions under their direction, those in positions of power strongly strongly suspected that it was possible for them to control the whole world with the push of a button. Immediately, the Rockefeller Foundation got to the ground floor, got on the ground floor, by making a four-year grant to Harvard College. Funding the Harvard Economic Research Project for the Study of the Structure of the American Economy. One year later, in 1949, the United States Air Force joined in. In 1952, the original grant period terminated, and a high-level meeting of the elite was held to determine the next phase of, of social operations research. It says the Harvard Project had been very fruitful as as is borne out by the publication of the sum of some of its results in 1953 suggesting the feasibility of economic social engineering studies in the structure of the american economy copyright 1953 
blah, 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 White Plains, New York, uh, International Sciences Press. It says the quiet war was quietly declared by the international elite at a meeting held in 1954. Although the silent weapons system, war, nearly expanded, I'm sorry, nearly was nearly exposed, it says, 13 years later, the evolution of the new weapons systems has never suffered any major setbacks. This volume marks again the 25th anniversary of the beginning of the quiet war. Already, this domestic war has had many victories on many fronts throughout the world. Then there's a political introduction to this document. And now I want to get into some of these uh, underlined sections here. This is on page 8. It says, in conclusion, the objective of economic research as conducted by the magnets of capital banking and the industries of commodities, goods, and services is the establishment of the economy which is totally predictable and manipulable. It says, in order to achieve a total predictable economy, the low something elements, low clan elements of the society must be brought under total control, i.e. must be housebroken, trained and assigned a yoke and long-term social duties from a very early age before they have an opportunity to question the propriety of the matter. In order to achieve such conformity, the lower class family unit must be disintegrated by the process of increasing preoccupation of the parents and the establishment of government-operated daycare centers for the occupationally orphaned children. If that doesn't define our society today, I don't know what does. Again, this right here is the matrix, ladies and gentlemen. It was written out, and we were born into it, and here it is. This is the plan. This is what they've been doing this entire time. It says the quality of education given to the lower class must be of the poorest sort so that the most so that the moat of ignorance isolating the inferior class from the superior class is the remains I'm sorry and remain is and remains incomprehensible to the inferior class with such an initial handicap even bright lower class individuals have little if any hope of extricting them selves from their assigned lot in life. This form of slavery is essential to maintaining some measure of social order, peace, and tranquility for the ruling upper class. Yeah, that's happening too, constantly. And you see how many people are bouncing inside of the matrix still fighting for that to exist? Rely on the school system, rely on the university, rely on us. That's why they keep saying it. That's why no politician talks about homeschooling. It's on purpose, because they're not allowed to bring it up. It then says, this section below that, is titled Descriptive Introduction of the Silent Weapon. It says, everything that is expected from an ordinary weapon is expected from a silent weapon by its creators, but only in its own manner of functioning. It says it shoots situations instead of bullets, propelled by some, both processing instead of chemical reaction explosions, originating from bits of data instead of grains of gunpowder, 
from a computer instead of a gun, operated by a computer programmer instead of a marksman, under the orders of the banking magnate instead of a military general. They're basically describing the internet. They're describing social media. They're describing YouTube. They're describing all of those organizations, all the online media organizations, same thing. It says it makes no obvious explosion noises, causes no obvious physical or mental injuries, and does not obviously interfere with anyone's daily social life. Yet it makes an unmistakable noise, quote-unquote, cause unmistakable physical and mental damage and unmistakable interference with daily social life, i.e. unmistakable to the untrained observer, one who knows what to look for. The public cannot comprehend this weapon and therefore cannot believe that they are being attacked and subdued by a weapon. Again, the media, TV, radio, everybody from NBC to Glenn Beck, they're all in on it. They're all a part of the problem. And it's, it's through mind control. It's through Operation Mockingbird working on the very people who work within Operation Mockingbird. It doesn't matter their so-called political allegiance or uh, political persuasion or what side of the proverbial aisle they sit on. They're all brainwashed, and they're being used to not only keep themselves brainwashed, but brainwash their audiences. It says the public might intrinsically feel that something is wrong, but because of the technical nature of the silent weapon, they cannot express their feelings in a rational way and handle the problems with intelligence. Therefore, they do not know how to cry for help and do not know how to associate with others to defend themselves against it. When a silent weapon is applied gradually to the public, the public adjusts slash adapts to its presence and learns to tolerate its encroachment on their lives until the pressure psychological via economic becomes too great, and they crack up. Therefore, the silent weapon is a type of biological warfare. It attacks the vitality, options, and mobility of the individuals of a society by knowing, understanding, manipulating, and attacking their sources of natural and social energy and their physical, mental, and emotional strengths and weaknesses. Unquote. I'm, I'm going to stop reading there. Uh, this document is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So, like I said, I'm going to put this on the website under the government documents tab at the bottom of that numbered list, which is the first list you can see under that tab. I highly recommend downloading this and, uh, and reading the entire thing. I could go through more of it right now, but for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to stop. Um, if this isn't proof of the matrix that we've been living in this entire time, I don't know what else is. We've all been manipulated, and we were born into this operation, and it's still happening. But there are cracks in the seam, and more people are waking up to this. But if for no other reason, just to understand that this was programmed into our society before we were even here. And this is the way that it is. Now, let me give you a couple of recent examples here. There are numerous recent examples, but I, I want to bring up 
I want to bring up a couple. I came across this particular explanation last week. Uh, it's rather thorough. And it basically has to do with, again, with what's going on in Israel and what's going on in the Middle East. The Zionists' plan isn't just to wipe out Gaza and Palestinians. The Zionists' plan is to expand their land, what they call the promised land or greater Israel, quote unquote, well into the eastern portion of Africa, from Cairo and the Mediterranean all the way down to the Horn of Africa, including, I would say, at least a fourth of Egypt, well into Syria, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. But here's here's what the particular, I guess you could call it a meme if you wanted to, but this is what this diagram has laid out. It starts with a quote from Theodore Herzl, who's the founding father of Zionism. He said, quote, the area of the Jewish state stretches from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates. It then below the map, and it shows a picture of the map and Theodore himself. It says, quote, for those who can't see the Zionists' plan for the Palestinians who reside in Gaza, well, there will be no stopping for Israel until the area is cleared of all Palestinians, whether they decide to flee or they are eventually killed. And once Israel takes a hold of Gaza, it won't stop there. Why do they think Israel has never declared its borders? It says, quote, the Jewish leadership in Palestine declared the establishment of the state of Israel on 14 May 1948, the moment the British mandate terminated, though without announcing its borders, unquote. Then it says, when you look at Israel before its breakup by the Roman Empire, Israel had no ancestral claim beyond their original border. Israel never consisted of the Gaza Strip or any land beyond. So it's strange how that in 1948 these borders were never reestablished. This is on top of the fact, today, roughly 90% of all Jews identify as Ashkenazi Jews, who trace their immediate ancestry to Europe. They are not descendants of Judah. Ashkenazi Jews descended from the, from the Khazars, a mix of Turkish and other peoples who settled in the Cascus, if I'm saying that right? Uh, in the early centuries AD, Khazars adopted Judaism in the 8th century. Zionism appears to be a threat to the entire region. They want to colonize and seize all land from the Firat, Euphrates, to the Nile, unquote. And to that, I say good, good flipping luck. Good luck. You have every Arab wanting, wanting you all gone now. And you have anybody who understands the threat of Zionism wanting you gone. Not the puppets who are paid by them, but people like us who know that you're a terrorist organization, always have been, and have engaged in endless atrocities, including, I might add, potentially writing the very silent war document that I was that I was reading from right there because aren't they the ones utilizing all of those strategies on a day in and day out basis right now certainly seems like it it's endless and they won't quit and they don't want to quit they want to keep rolling so yeah uh let me mention a few education related things and I want to end with 
an education story in the education portion of this episode, which again ties into everything that I've already brought up thus far, specifically having to do with artificial intelligence. It's remarkable. But let me get to a few of these other education stories here very quickly. The first one is from Fox News. My apologies for the reference. This is titled, Texas Parents Say Teacher Singled Out Israeli Daughter to Make Pro-Palestinian Comment. It says, the teacher wrote, no justice, no peace, justice for Palestine on the board. And apparently that's all it took to allegedly make this alleged student who is allegedly Jewish uh, uncomfortable. Well, okay. What about the rest of us when you put up your rainbow flags? What about that? It says, a concerned parent in Texas said her high school daughter, who is Israeli, was targeted by her teacher who allegedly made anti-Semitic comments during a lesson. It says, uh, let's see, Talia Payoun, if I'm saying that right, a freshman at Dickinson High School in Dickinson, Texas told Fox 26 Houston that she walked into her English class to find the whiteboard, had a popular pro-Palestinian mantra, no justice, no peace, justice for Palestine, written on it. Talia, who is Israeli, said the message was not part of the lesson, but believes it was an opportunity for the teacher to share with her students her opinion about the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. Well, so what? They're a school teacher and they do this. This is the environment. This is this right here again is the divide and conquer. This is the left eating its own. The snake always eats its own tail. It's amazing. They, they don't scream and shout when it's a rainbow flag, but when it comes after when it comes after them, well, then the double standard shows itself. It says Talia told Fox 26 that her teacher asked her where she was from. She said, "Oh, you still have family in Israel?" I said, yes, of course. All my family is over there, and I am from there too, Talia said. Talia said that the incident made her feel scared and alone since she's the only Israeli in the public high school. I'm really scared. I'm the only Israeli at the school. No one is Jewish over there. They made me feel guilty that I'm Jewish and that I'm from Israel. Again, the double standard is astounding. It's, ast- it's astounding. It was rather odd, too. Um, I don't know what they were doing, but on the board, on the corner of the left-hand board, it says November 16th, 2023, and then there's a drawing of a watermelon. And then it says, no justice, no peace, hashtag justice, the number four, Palestine. Okay. It's in different handwriting, too, from from one thing to the next. This whole thing could be staged, as far as I'm concerned. It really could. People do this all the time. Again, this is the silent war. They'll even stage something like this to, to promote fake outrage and try to get people again to believe something that isn't true. And then, uh, you know, they comment on it and they, they blindly believe it at face value. Me, me, frankly, I don't even know if it actually happened. It's, I don't know. It seems rather odd. There's this also, this stretches back to what I brought up in the last episode. My, again, apologies for the reference. This is the blaze. Uh, It says, that was fast. Texas A&M scrubs some job postings of DEI. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this in Texas, because they've outlawed DEI statements, apparently, in the state of Texas. And uh, Texas A&M, which is a massive hub for the CIA, 
They've apparently decided to do whatever they want and continue with some of their DEI statements or DEI paperwork for incoming employees and things of that nature, and they've just been told that they can't do that. So it says, Texas A&M has scrubbed job postings for illegal pseudo-DEI statements less than 24 hours after Blaze News broke the story exposing how the university was defying Republican Governor Greg Abbott's executive order banning the use of DEI statements. The Bush School of Government, yes, there's nothing suspicious about that, the Bush School of Government is hiring four tenure-track assistant professors. On Wednesday, the school was asking all candidates to provide a cover letter containing, quote, past and planned contributions to advancing diversity, available at the Wayback Machine. By Thursday, the job posting dropped the language relating to advancing diversity, quote-unquote, entirely. None of the other DEI requirements linked in Wednesday's article appear to have been changed. It isn't the first time Texas A&M brass have scrubbed the school's website of embarrassing and illegal activities, and so on and so on. Again, the cat is out of the bag on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, it's crumbling to the ground, which is great. It too is being destroyed from multiple angles, and it's getting to the point where if individuals again are subscribing to it, then they are being attacked and laughed at and ridiculed in the public square. This too is the divide and conquer strategy being used against them, and it seems to be working, which is great. But with that strategy apparently falling by the wayside, ladies and gentlemen, this is the next section, and this has to do with artificial intelligence, and this right here again is the silent weapon. This is the silent war. This is the quiet weapon. This is, this is exactly what it is. So before I get into this article, let me just revisit something regarding artificial intelligence in the field of quote-unquote K-12 and university education. You may recall months, months and months and months ago, I brought this up when AI sort of hit the scene, and I want to say it was at least nine months ago, in particular in the field of education. You may recall that the initial outset of this subject in education was panic initially. Initially, there were concerns of plagiarism and what are we going to do, and students can now plagiarize an entire book, and they can basically have AI write an entire book, claim it's theirs, or write an entire paper, claim it's theirs, and then what are we going to do? There's no way to fight this. There's no way that we can figure out whether or not they were the ones that actually wrote it, or was it AI? That was the panic. It was at the K-12 and university level, up and down the chain. And then we started to see how the silent weapon and the silent operation operates. And then about, I'd say, four to five months into that, after that initial outrage, what we saw was the middle ground. And the middle ground strategy was, we'll tell people about plagiarism, we'll warn people about AI plagiarism, but what we will then do is we'll see how we can integrate AI into our classrooms to not make it seem so nefarious, in particular to outsiders. What this means is, is that the entire education apparatus got its orders. They all got their corporate orders. You're going to slowly integrate artificial intelligence into this profession, whether you like it or not. 
We promise it's going to make your job easier as a teacher. With a side note, the teacher doesn't know that they're being elbowed out of the profession completely. Because with AI and with computer-based learning, why do you even need a teacher? You don't. You don't even need an instructor. They want artificial intelligence on a computer to be the instructor for the child and have that be the mainstream way that it just continues to exist. That's it. It's no different, again, than any other line of work or a box store or a grocery store putting in more self-checkouts and taking away human beings who actually check out your groceries for you. You scan it, you pay for it, you bag it, you do it. Why do I need a person there then? The machine is cheaper to operate than a human being, and there you have it. Now, that leads me to this article, which is titled the following, can't make this up. This was in the Tri-County newspaper, where I live, on Sunday. It's titled, AI will completely change education world, leaders say. The subtitle, at local event, officials compare artificial intelligence to the Industrial Revolution. You see the steps of progression here? It went from all-out panic, we can't have artificial intelligence, to, well, we can have a little bit of it from time to time, but it'll have its, it'll have its hurdles and its downfalls, and uh, there will be some challenges, and blah, blah, blah. Now they're all in. They're all in. And they have no choice. Because again, education, so to speak, certainly the way that government has it set up is the illusion of choice. Always has been, still is. This is the silent weapon. This is the quiet war. Here's what it says. Quote, If money was no obstacle, Butler Tech Superintendent John Graft would open an academy specifically for artificial intelligence. He has other ideas. Like, a tr- like training camps for pilots, but AI is the first thing he thinks of when pondering pie-in-the-sky ideas. Initially, I already don't like this guy. I already don't trust him. If he doesn't come from a three-letter agency, he's tied to one. He has to be. They said it's something he's been thinking about a lot recently. And then he said, quote, it will completely change the dynamics of the workforce, Graft said. More than that, Education leaders in the region say artificial intelligence will change the way kids learn. In some respects, it already has. One leader at Miami University compared it to the Industrial Revolution. Another said AI will do more to change the way we live than the Internet. At a Chamber of Commerce luncheon earlier this month, Graf told a story about an old calculator that looked like an owl. He said he remembers a time when teachers would prohibit the use of calculators, forcing students to learn mathematics without the help of technology. Today that sounds silly, and it is how Graft and other leaders think about AI. It says, quote, If you have a high schooler and you think they aren't using AI, they absolutely are, said Yvette Kelly Fields, Director of Development for Miami University's regional campuses. Quote, Pandora's box is already open, unquote. Listen to the terms they use. Listen to this brainwashing. They have no idea that they are going through with a remarkably destructive program here. 
that will even destroy their own job. They have no idea. These are the useful idiots. It says, at Miami, Kelly Fields said students are taught to think critically. No, they're not. They then said this will help them use artificial intelligence as another tool, not just another way to cheat on writing assignments. Kelly Fields said in five years, we will use products with built-in AI that were developed by Miami students. Superintendent Graff said using AI tools to help organize information and get it from a student's head onto a page should not be considered a bad thing. At Butler Tech, he said students recently started using AI to help with their schedules. Why? Why? Do they not, do they not possess the brain power to write down what they have to do when they have to do it on a calendar? Are they that retarded? It says, just as workplaces have evolved into remote and hybrid options with schedules that don't stick to 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. workday, students want flexibility too. They want to work one day and take a class at night. They don't want to come to campus every day. They want to have Friday off. So what? Online learning already exists. Again, these these technical institutions are destroying themselves from inside out. You may recall, uh, as I digress here for just a minute, you may recall I had a guest on the show who attended a Texas college and a technical uh, a technical institution in Texas, and they said, "Sean, it's not just the K twelve schools and the universities; it's the technical schools. They're going all in on all this artificial intelligence woke bullshit." All of it. So much so, again, that they're graduating individuals who can't tie their own shoes, and yet we're supposed to rely on these individuals to build our roads and maintain infrastructure and then build new infrastructure. They can't do it. It continues here. It says, using AI, Butler Tech students explain what they are interested in and what they want. Using that information, artificial intelligence tools can figure a schedule that stays within curriculum guidelines and requirements. It's been a success, Graft says. Quote, technology is changing every aspect of every person's job, he said. If you're not thinking about it, you're probably behind, unquote. This person is a fool. They're an absolute fool. The article wraps up and it says, At the luncheon, which Cox First Media co-sponsored, Graft explained the term prompt engineer, quote-unquote. He said he'd never heard of it a year ago. It basically means asking AI the right questions. Because if you don't ask the right questions in the right way, Graft says, you won't get worthwhile responses. Holy shit. Does this person not know how a search engine works on the internet? If you don't ask the right questions into particular search engines, you're not going to get what you're looking for either. This person's a, this graft person has apparently never been on the internet and doesn't understand basic search engine literacy. It says Monica Posey, president of Cincinnati State Technical and Community College, said she hopes the technology will help students find better support systems and more resources. Quote, I see it changing the whole spectrum of how we do higher ed, unquote, Posey said. 
On December 7th, the Chamber of Commerce will conduct another event to discuss AI with business leaders in the county. Holy shit. They are, they're, they're all screwed. That, that's it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the nail in the coffin in education and business. Artificial intelligence will destroy it. It's, it's that simple. It's in that document, that former quote-unquote top-secret document that I was just reading from. This is the silent weapon, and you need the useful idiot to carry out its plans. It can't get clearer. It's crystal clear to us, but not these idiots. I didn't even know what looking things up on the internet was a year ago, and how when you type things into a search engine, if you don't type in the right question, you're not going to get back the right response. Well, you're retarded. There's no way around it. If you don't know that by now, hell, I knew that when computers showed up in the 80s. And in the 90s, when the internet showed up and these computers showed up in our schools, we knew if you didn't ask the right question and reword the question in order to find the answer, not what was comfortable, but what was the actual thing you were looking for, then you were never going to find it. But this guy just figured it out a year ago. Holy hell. Remember Netscape? Does anybody remember Netscape and Internet Explorer? That's what we had. Everybody clicked on Netscape, and you were like, wow, the internet. And then you type in what you were looking for, and it was right there. That's back when, again, the internet was, uh, the internet's cooler today than it's ever been, but even back then, the internet was cool. You could find some really interesting stuff depending on the kinds of questions you asked, but you had to have a brain in your skull to ask the right questions. Now they're using artificial intelligence for students to schedule out their week because they don't know how to pick up a pen and write on a piece of paper. Honest to God. This is not the future, ladies and gentlemen. It's the future of our destruction, but it is not the future when it comes to correcting course here. This is the silent weapon. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Uh, there's this too. Let's move into the jab-related things, shall we? I want to briefly introduce this particular Twitter thread here from a champagne joshi, at Josh Walcos on Twitter. This was on uh, November 15th, and it's a mega thread here, and it actually leads into just a couple of other jab-related things. One in particular, again, which has to do with the silent war regarding going after ethical doctors. And again, it ties right back into that scheme of how they maintain control at the top, and then, of course, how we take it back. It's a little tougher within the medical industry, because as you might expect, much like the education industry, they have these individuals by the spine when it comes to their certification and their licensure. You've heard me speak about that fraud before. It is fraudulent. That's the, that, that, that right there is government overreach over a knowledgeable individual, that if you don't have licensure or certification in your so-called area, then you cannot practice, quote-unquote exists with lawyers, of course, educators, the medical profession, so on and so on, engineering, lots of lines of work. But here's what they said. They said, while the culture war rages on, the very same people who fund it, foment it, and exploit it are barreling toward an unprecedented power grab draped in the language that we have grown weary of. You know the language. Words like inclusivity, diversity, and equity feature prominently 
the WHO's documents. It says these are political words that are a crypto-fascist and in practice mean exactly the opposite of their professed meanings. Well, it's crypto-Marxism, but whatever. It says, so, it is fitting that they are littered throughout the proposed Pandemic Preparedness Treaty. You've heard me go over that treaty before. I'm not going to revisit it, but again, these kinds of liquid words that have liquid definitions that change with the tides depending on the season and you know the the social temperature of of society so to speak this is exactly what the what the powers that be have in mind that they can consistently manipulate the landscape any way they see fit subvert our constitutional rights as they did in the last three and a half years if not, of course, far longer than that, but certainly in the last three and a half years. And then no one's held accountable. Because as I've said before, it's the perfect crime. If everybody just goes along with it, then a law isn't being broken. Doesn't matter what it is. If everybody goes along with it, well, that's just the way that it is. It says Article 59 Amendment. It says the WHO wants to speed up the amendment process, cutting down rejection and enactment times. Why the rush? It's as if they're trying to steamroll over national deliberation processes. Yes, that's exactly what they want. They want to move forward as fast as they can to get all of these health agencies in every government on the same page so that the agency has the say, not us. And if those agencies control the medical licensures of people, which they do already, well, then the doctors and nurses in hospitals aren't going to have a say regardless of what truth gets brought to bear. Look at Kim Carter's case. Same exact thing. She's a perfect example of what happens when you're inside the system and you're downstream from such a pandemic treaty. You heard, I played the audio here on the show, you heard the CEO, HR director, and the CEO, or I'm sorry, CIO, or wh whatever that person's position was, that they were all saying the same thing. It's our policy. Mask wearing is our policy. This is our policy. It's the way that it is. There's no thinking beyond that. They just repeat, rinse, and repeat, rinse, and repeat. Kim could stand there with the patient next to her, covered in boils with her legs falling off. And the woman says, I was injected with the COVID jabs and I wore a mask. Now look at me. With oils all over her and her legs falling off. And, and the people, the, the higher ups, quote unquote, would still say the same thing. Well, we're sorry about that. You have no proof. It's still our policy. They're counting on the unthinking the brainwashed, and the useful idiots to continue to go along with this. They're counting on it. They need them for the silent war. That's the point. I want to read this post. This was on Gab just today. This is from Dr. Sutton, a Dr. Sutton, at Dr. M-K-S-U-T-T-O-N on Gab. They introduced themselves in this post. Here's what they said, quote, My name is Dr. Mary Kelly Sutton. I practice medicine for five decades with no board or hospital complaints and no malpractice judgments. 
The Medical Board of California re revoked my California medical license March 25th, 2022, for writing eight vaccine medical exemptions for school children. I am challenging this revocation in court. On July 13th of 2023, the Massachusetts Board of Registration in Medicine revoked my Massachusetts medical license based on one fact. Her California license was revoked. See what I mean? I experienced the same thing. I was in Florida, had a teaching license. They put sanctions on my license, and I said, well, I'm not teaching here anyway. I'm not going to jump through your hoops to maintain my license. Go to hell. I moved to Ohio, and then somebody tells the Ohio Department of Education the same thing about what I experienced in Florida, and they say, you have a dangerous educator who might be certified in your, in your school systems, which I wasn't, but I had certification in the state of Ohio. What did they do? They said, well, Florida put sanctions on your license, so we will too. And then they just took it from me. Same thing here with her. The only reason that Massachusetts got rid of her Massachusetts medical license was because California did it. She continued, sorry for the digression there. She says, this is called reciprocal discipline. Yeah. 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 Man, was I ahead of the curve on this. God, did I experienced this long before Dr. Sutton. Okay, they continued. They said there were no patient injuries or patient complaints in either California or Massachusetts. Now the New York Medical Board has set a date for September 7th for a proceeding against me, applying reciprocal discipline despite my New York license having been inactive for almost 40 years and despite the fact that I never practiced in the state. Join the club. I never taught in Ohio. They took it from me anyway. The Wall Street, and you have no recourse, by the way. You have zero. The Wall Street Journal and Children's Health Defense have chronicled the case. Sadly, this is not unique. Yes. A growing number of physicians who read scientific literature for themselves an individualized patient treatment based on that reading are being investigated and disciplined for treating their patients as individuals. The professional and government narrative today is pushing doctors to treat and advise patients without any consideration of their unique medical needs, most notably for COVID-19 cases and for all vaccinations. Only the health recommendations of the government and established establishment medicine rather should be followed. Remarkably, doctors who deviate from ethical and legal behavior in the practice of medicine, such as sexual aggression, financial fraud, poor quality care with deadly outcome, most often do not face license revocation. Patient advocate groups have been formed to plead for victims of these doctors, unquote. Yes, this is the plan. This is the silent weapon. This is the, uh, this is the model that I mentioned at the top of the show. This is the same thing. It's how the regime works. It is the model. They don't have to fire a gun. They don't have to load a gun. It doesn't have to make a whole lot of noise. No one has to die. All they have to do 
is just pull the rug out from underneath you with many people not understanding that it was they who put the rug there in the first place and told us to stand on it. And they said, you can't ride this carpet ride without the rug underneath you. You have to do it. This is how you become qualified. Doesn't matter your bachelor's, master's, PhD, medical, medical degrees. None of that matters. All of that's useless. If you need to maintain your job by possessing a certification or a licensure of any kind that's held by the powers that be and the enemy at hand here, then they own you. That's it. And that's how they take it from you. You don't play ball, they take it from you, and then you never play ball again. So they think. Again, one person suggested, why wouldn't that doctor just start their own private practice and blah, blah, blah. You can't have a private practice if they take your medical license. You can't. The only thing that you could do is engage in consultation. That's it. You can't write prescriptions, but you can share information. That's essentially what the profession would be boiled down to. And they're weeding these doctors out one by one. They know who they are. They're keeping track. They're keeping lists. Telehealth medicine doctors, the whole thing. They're finding these people and they're coming after them. But they have to, they have to keep fighting back. You can keep fighting back. And you might make some inroads and you might win occasionally. In particular, if you bring all of the proof to bear. But as I've said before, it's the perfect crime. Getting a medical board to understand that they themselves probably injected themselves with a biological weapon that's going to be the cause of their death and then get them to rule in your favor when you tell them such a thing? That's a tall order. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen. So I'm going to end it there, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot there, I know. But again, my recommendation is you go to the website under the Government Documents tab. Both of those government documents at the top of this episode that I read, I will link both of those on there, uh, again, at the bottom of that massive list. With that said, I will catch you on Wednesday. I'm going to upload this one on YouTube. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Strike number one. Looking forward to it thoroughly. I'm telling you, it's just controlled demolition. I'm doing it on purpose. I really don't care. Uh, but uh, what else? Oh, yeah. Okay. So there will be an episode on Wednesday. No episode on Friday this week. And then there won't be an episode next Monday. But I will be back the following Wednesday. So again, look out for Wednesday's episode here, and I will catch you then. Take care. God bless. Peace. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.